The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're going to finish John 13 this morning. And we're going to look at the last three verses of the chapter. Let me read them to you. Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. There was a phrase in the Reformation, and I've always thought it was helpful. It's a Latin phrase, so stay with me here. But the, the phrase is simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. And what the phrase means is at the same time, a saint and a sinner. At the same time, the Christian is a saint and a sinner. You're a saint in the sense, every Christian is, is that the moment that you place your faith in Christ, you are justified. You stand on the righteousness of Christ. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when you place your faith in Christ, you are united to Christ so that his perfect life is credited to you. Therefore, when you stand before God, you don't stand on your own merit and your own righteousness. You stand on what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, the righteousness of another. You stand on the righteousness of Christ. And that's why in the New Testament, every single Christian is called a saint. Did you know that? You're not just a saint if you're some super Christian who helps old ladies walk across the street. Even the Corinthians, the worst church in the New Testament, they're called saints. Why? Because they are united to Christ. Now, when you come to faith in Christ, something also experientially happens in your life. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you come to Christ, Jesus says in John 3, you are born from above, you are born again. You are born of, the water, of water and the Spirit. You're given a new heart. You're given the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's why when you come to faith in Christ, there's a change that happens in your life if it's true faith. And that grip that your carnal flesh, on, that, that your carnal flesh has on you is broken. 
and you begin to change. I was talking to one of my Aggie buddies this past week, and he said, you know, my, my friends from school don't relate to me the same way that they used to. It's like I'm not in the in crowd anymore. And it's because my desires have changed. And they're still where they were. And now I'm on the outside. Have you ever experienced that? Some of your old, old friends that you used to, to run around with? That's the Christian life, is that you, you change, that you become in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. So even though you are justified, you are a saint, even though you're born again and you begin to become more like Christ, does that mean that we no longer sin? No, it does not. There was a guy named John Wesley. Have y'all, y'all know John Wesley? John Wesley taught what's called the doctrine of perfectionism, that you can become, this side of glory, perfect. In fact, there's been some people that lived perfect lives after they became Christians. There's some people out there, he said, that are perfect. And Wesley said, you know, I might be getting close to there myself. Now, is that true? No, because, and, and it, jot this verse down, Galatians 5.17. Listen to what Paul says. It, this is the Christian experience. Even though the flesh has been crucified, the flesh is still there. And he says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you doing the things you want to do. So sanctification, this Christian life is a process where you are battling the flesh, where you are battling the world and the devil. And yes, we become more Christ-like, but John says, this is 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. James says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. Therefore, even though the Christian is declared righteous and given a new heart and is on the path to becoming more righteous, we still do not achieve perfection in this life. And that's why the phrase I think Simon Eustace at Peccator is helpful to remember. Yes, we are a saint in Christ. And at the same time, we are still sinners who struggle with sin. And you think about the panorama of biblical history. This is the story of every saint. Noah, you know, he comes off the ark and then he gets drunk and is found naked by his kids. Abraham, Uh, decides that he's going to tell Abimelech that his wife is his sister. Moses, the great man of God who met face to face with God, God told him to talk to the rock and Moses hits the rock twice with a stick. David lusted on the rooftop. Jonah went to Tarsus instead of Nineveh. The Galatians added works to grace. The Corinthians allowed adulterers in their midst. And the church of Ephesus abandoned their first love. The entire story of the Christian church is a story of people who were justified in faith, who stood on grace, and yet continued to struggle with their sin. Is that true of us this morning? 
Anybody exempt? I don't see any hands. You know what that means also? That means that there's no perfect churches. Some, some people are out there looking for the perfect church. And I've got news for you. Every single church is full of sinners. Justified sinners, hopefully. But still, people that need grace and need mercy from Christ. Here's something important to remember. The evidence that you are a true Christian is not that you don't sin, but that you hate your sin and that you repent of your sin. That's the mark of a Christian. Sometimes I talk to Christians and they said, you know, since I've become a Christian, I've become even more aware of my sinfulness. I've become even more aware of my struggle with sin. And, and that's, by and large, I think, the experience of the Christian is that you, you, you see your sin more truly for what it is. And you fight against it and you hate it. Paul says this, Romans eight thirteen. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the Christian life. I, I heard one member of our church this week say, you mortify your sin. I said, that's a great word. Mortify. That's an old Puritan word. He's, he was saying what Paul's saying here, that you put to death your sin. I had one buddy in college, and uh, he, he, he just said, you know what? I can't have the computer in my room anymore. It's too tempting to look at things I'm not supposed to. So he said, I'm going to I'm going to get it out. And that's what Jesus said. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. John says this, 1 John 3, 8, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So it's not that the Christian doesn't sin. It's that the Christian doesn't stay in the habitual sin. The Christian will eventually repent and repudiate the sin. And John says the reason why this is as he says, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So the Christian sins, but they make every effort to confess, repent, and put their sin to death. And one of the great reminders of this truth, and it's such, it's such a helpful reminder, I think, is the life of the apostle Peter. I mean, can you imagine being Peter and being in Jerusalem and then being the, the, the senior pastor of the church in Rome and maybe little kids running around going, cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> what does that make you think of, Peter? His, his sins were front page news. They're in all four gospels. This denial of Christ. So it's, uh, it's humbling, but it's also there, I think, for our encouragement and, and for our edification. So let me give you a quick bio of Peter just, as, uh, just so you can remember who he is and his significance. 
We learned as we studied in the first chapter of John that Peter came to Christ through his brother Andrew. Andrew was most likely a disciple of John the Baptist, and one day he heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at that point, Andrew began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Andrew, like any good brother, then went to his brother Peter, and he said, Peter, we have found the one who is going to be the Messiah. And in John 1.42, it says, He, Andrew, brought him, Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. And, and then Jesus gives him a nickname. He says, You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter or the rock. So Peter was not Simon's given name. It was the nickname that our Lord gave him. And then do you remember? That's when I think Peter believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And then Mark records how Peter became one of the Lord's disciples. This is in Mark 1.16. Mark says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So that's a later instance. That's when they became Jesus' disciples. And from there, both Peter and Andrew were selected to become part of the 12. And if you look at the list of the 12 disciples, they're found in Mark chapter 3, verse 15, Luke chapter 6, verse 14, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Simon Peter is always listed first. Always listed first. And the reason for that is because he was the leader of the apostles. He was the spokesperson of the apostles. He was he was very important. Uh, I want you to see this. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16. This is when Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi, and he wants to teach them a very important lesson. If you look at verse 13. Matthew tells us, it says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. That means the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, these verses have caused a lot of controversy because these verses are used by the Roman Catholic Church to establish the universal uh, priesthood of the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church. That the, the rock is Peter, and that authority is passed on through history to the bishops that followed him. But what Jesus is saying is, is that Peter and the other apostles 
are the rock or the foundation of the church in so much as they confess the true gospel that Christ is Lord and that they write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the canon of the New Testament. It is the apostles, yes, but it is the apostles in their confession of the truth. It is the truth of the New Testament that binds our consciences, and it is the truth of the New Testament that is preached and opens up heaven's doors. Then he, Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here Peter is soaring. He's the leader. He speaks on behalf of the disciples. And then look at verse 21. Look at how quick, though, Peter stumbles. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He says, look, you need to know the inside track here. I am going to Jerusalem where I will be crucified. And he says, I will suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance, uh, there's a little footnote there in the English Standard Version. You could translate it stumbling stone. So Peter goes from being the rock to being the stumbling block, the stumbling stone. Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter would stumble in other places. Just the next chapter uh, later on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is glorified, his full glory is seen. Moses and Elijah are there with him. And Peter says, Lord, can I make houses for all of you? Can I make a, a booth, a house for Moses and Elijah and the Lord? And, and, and basically it's as if God himself rebukes Peter and says, this is my beloved son. That's what the focus should be on, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then we saw in John 13, didn't we, where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet and Peter said, Lord, May it never be, may you never wash my feet. And then Jesus told him, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part with me. You can turn back to, to John 13. So the point being is that Peter is a disciple. I once heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson describe him as a disciple with fits and starts. He has shining moments he has his Pentecost moment where he preaches the Pentecost sermon. He proclaims the lordship of Christ at Caesarea Philippi. And then at other points, he stumbles greatly. And this, in, in these three verses, is our Lord's prediction of his greatest misstep, his greatest humiliation of his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I think is somewhat interesting is that Jesus has been talking to the disciples. Remember, they are in the upper room. And Jesus has talked about the fact that Judas will betray him. He's talked about the, the um, very 
pressing betrayal. He's talked about the new commandment of love, that they are all to love one another and given them this new commandment. But Peter is focused on something. He's focused on what Jesus said in verse 33. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So out of everything that Peter heard, this is what grabbed his attention, and this is what gripped him. And I want you to write in the margin next to verse 36, affection. Peter had affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is one of the marks of a true Christian is that you have a love, an affection, an experiential desire for Christ. And that's what Peter has. And he asks this question, verse 36. He says to the Lord, Lord, Kyrios, where are you going? And of course, Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to the, to the empty tomb. He was going to the right hand of, of God the Father. He was going to accomplish our salvation. But it was so hard for Peter to hear our Lord say that he was leaving. And where he was going, Peter could not immediately come. And the reason why this was so hard for Peter is because he had a love for the Lord. He wanted to be where the Lord was was. And he could not in his mind envision Christ's kingdom being established anywhere else but at that place at that time. He was focused on being with Christ forever. He can't imagine what his life would be like without Christ. He has affection for Christ. And when we talk about affection, we're not talking about superstition. When I was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there, they had the, the laying stone, the stone that they supposedly laid Christ's body on to, to bind him in, in the, the linens after he was crucified. And people were taking their shirts and their garments and, and all sorts of things and, and rubbing them on the stone as if by doing so they could receive some type of blessing or, or magic power. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about affection. When we talk about affection, please listen very carefully. We're talking about your desire to obey and follow Christ. There are so many people that claim the name of our Lord but have no desire to obey him. That have no desire to follow him. But Jesus says, this is John 15, he says, you know what the mark is of, of the disciple who, who abides in me, the, disciple, the, the mark of the disciple who wants to be with me? He says, this is it, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And this, my friends, is the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas, all he wanted from the Lord was the blessings. He wanted the, the, the loaves and the fish. He wanted the kingdom. 
He didn't want Christ. What Peter wanted more than anything is Christ himself. He wanted to be with the Lord. He was infatuated with the person of Christ. And so it's a very important question as we're diagnosing our own Christian life is do you have an affection for Christ? Do you have an affection for Christ where you desire to obey him with your life? Or is it just a check mark in the box? That, yeah, I'm a, I, you know, I want to be a good person. I want to I wanna go to heaven when I die. I want to I put that check there. But friends, heaven is only heaven because Christ is there. And it is the love of Christ. And it is the union with Christ. This is one of the glorious doctrines of the New Testament is that in faith you are united to Christ. So that you mystically, spiritually speaking, not in a, a carnal way, but as in a spiritual way, you are united to him. So that wherever you go, his presence is there with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus says, even to the end of the age. Our good shepherd is with us in the valleys, on the mountaintops, wherever we go. We are united to him, and the believer loves that reality. They treasure that reality. So that's an important diagnostic question. That's one of the questions I ask when people come to me, and they say, I'm struggling with assurance. How do I really, really know that I am a Christian? And that's what I ask them. I say, do you love Christ? I do, not, not perfectly, but yes. Do you desire to obey him? When it comes to Christ's commandments and what the world says, where do you go? You say, well, I'm just going to keep doing this. You know, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I really, this is really my true desire. Well, the Christian wants to obey. They treasure Christ. Look how Jesus answers Peter, verse, second part of verse 36. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. Notice that word now, underline that word now. But you will follow afterward. Christ must complete his salvific work alone. He must go to the cross alone. Peter can't do that for him. Christ must go into heaven as the first of many fruits. Christ must be the first that experiences the resurrection from the dead. Christ must pave the way, as we looked at from Hebrews 2 a couple weeks ago, as the pioneer. Christ must go on ahead. But Jesus gives Peter this solace. He says, you know, I'm going forward, but you will follow me later. You will follow me afterward. And of course, Peter would later be martyred. He would later be crucified upside down in Rome by Nero in 68 AD. He would follow Christ, but obviously not in the same way. Christ gave an atonement for sins. And Peter's death would be out of devotion to Christ. So first we see Peter's affection, and that's the, that's the anchor of the Christian life, is that affection for Christ. But here we see his overconfidence in verse 37. Right in the margin next to verse 37, overconfidence. Peter had an overconfidence 
in his own abilities. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Why can I not follow you now? And his rationale is, I will lay down my life for you. I'm ready to go the distance. I'm I'm ready to do it all. I'm ready to give my life for you, Lord. He had an overconfidence in his abilities. When I was playing uh, schoolyard football, did you ever have those kids, and they would say, go deep, go deep, and you'd start running, and then they wouldn't throw the ball, and you just keep running, and you get to the point you're like, I don't think he can throw it this far. They said, no, keep going, keep going, and then they finally throw it, and where, where does the ball land? Like 20 yards in front of you. There's an overconfidence in their abilities or on the, uh, on the baseball diamond. You know, they ever have somebody do the Babe Ruth, you know, where they come up and they stick up their bat? This one's going over the fence only to hit an infield uh, out. It's an overconfidence. And in our flesh, we are prone to trust our natural abilities rather than the spirit of Christ, rather than Christ himself. And that's where Peter was. Peter believed that in his current situation, he was strong enough and spiritual enough to give his life for Christ, when in reality, this is the same man who would not even be able to stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane, the same man who, when questioned by a servant girl, would deny our Lord. And so the lesson, I think, is very simple. Our flesh is very weak. And as believers, don't think that you are immune to sin. Don't think that Satan cannot take you out. Don't think that you are strong enough to stand on your own strength. That's why Joseph ran from sin. That's why Paul says, put on the full armor of God. That's why Billy Graham, he and Cliff Barrows and and George Beverly Shea, they made some rules I know the media mocks it, but it was smart. They said, you know what? We will not be in a room or a car or an elevator with a woman who's not our spouse. We will not speak ill of another evangelist. And we will not be the ones handling the finances. You know why? Because we don't trust ourselves. And if there's ever... An uh, in, in issue, no one will be able to point the finger at us because we, we kept ourselves far away from those things. You can critique Billy Graham on a lot of things. There's, there's, he made a lot of mistakes, but you know what you can't question is his moral integrity. You can't question his moral integrity, and that's because he didn't trust himself. He didn't trust his own natural abilities. I want to show you something that's going on in the background here. If you would turn to the left to Luke 22, to Luke 22. Luke records something very interesting, and this is in verse 31. On the way over to the Mount of Olives as they're walking, Jesus is going to give Simon some inside baseball. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, 
that he might sift you like wheat. Here's what's interesting about this statement. The you is plural. Satan demanded to have the disciples, all of them. Satan demanded to have not only Peter, but, but the others as well. Satan wants to destroy them. Remember Job. Satan comes to the Lord and says, have you considered Job? And Satan wants to take him out. And God says, you can, you can, um, you can take his, his family. You can take his livestock. Uh, just don't touch him. And then God later allows Satan to even inflict uh, sores and sickness on Job. But Satan wanted to take Job out. He wanted to take the disciples out. Satan wants to take you out. He wants to take me out. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you think that in your own strength that you can stand against Satan? I don't think so. I don't think any Christian in their own strength is strong enough to stand against an angel, a fallen angel, but an angel nonetheless. We need Christ's supernatural power, and that's why Paul goes to great length to describe the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. But even after he goes through the armor, Paul ends by saying, you have to pray in the Spirit. So even the the, the power to put on the armor and the power to stand comes from God, that we seek the Lord's help to stand against the enemy's advances. Now, notice why Simon and the other disciples will not be totally obliterated. Verse 32, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it was the prayer of Christ, the supernatural power of Christ that would restore Peter and not allow his faith to be completely destroyed. Robert Murray McShane said, if I knew Christ was praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. But he is praying for me, so the distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for you. And what that means is, is if you're in Christ, you remember what Jesus said in in John 10, no one can take you out of his hand. Satan might want to destroy you. Satan might want to sift you. But he can only do so as much as Christ gives him the leash to do it. And Christ is praying for you. Christ is praying for you so that you will not fall. But we need to pray to him and ask for strength We need to pray to him to ask for supernatural strength that we can stand in the evil day. And Paul realized this. When you read Paul's letters, what Paul realized is that when he realized his his own personal weaknesses, it was in those moments that he was actually the strongest because it was then that he relied on the supernatural power of Christ. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7. He says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
God's plan in the Christian life is not for you to rely on yourself, but for you to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Christian often overestimates what they can accomplish with their own natural abilities, but underestimates what they can accomplish through the power of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul say in Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But you will not know Christ's power until you know your weakness. It is in weakness that you know his strength. I once heard Alistair Begg tell this story. It's so funny but so true. And I often think about it, but he was describing when he went to his first American football game. And the two teams uh, were not evenly matched. One team was significantly better than the other team. And the, the weaker team had a group of cheerleaders. And they started cheering at the beginning of the game, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. You can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. And the other team started scoring touchdowns. Touchdown after touchdown until they were winning by over 50 points. And the cheerleaders were still cheering, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. But the reality is, they couldn't. They couldn't. And that's the reality of who we are in our own strength. You don't have the strength to live the Christian life on your own. But with Christ's strength, with Christ's power, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you can. You can. And so, are you spending time in prayer, going to the throne of grace and asking for the Lord's help? Asking for his strength, his power, asking others to pray for you. Are you going to his word so that you can, the, God's word is supernatural. It's a sword. God uses it to, to fend off the attacks of Satan. Are you spending time in his word? Are you relying on the spirit's power? If you try to stand in your own strength, you will fall. But if you stand in the power of Christ, you will accomplish great things for his kingdom. And that's what Peter failed to do, is he overestimated his own abilities. And then next to verse 38, I want you to write, underestimating Christ. Underestimating Christ. You know, Peter has this exclamatory emotion, you know, that he will lay down his life for Christ. Sometimes in the Marine Corps, we call this good initiative, but poor judgment. You know, it's, we appreciate the sentiment, but, but the thinking is off. And the thinking is off because the Christian life is founded on the basis of what Christ does and not what we do. This is so important. Oftentimes, Christians think that the Christian faith is something that the disciples do for Jesus, when in reality, the Christian faith is what Jesus does for his disciples. You can't get that wrong. You get that wrong, you're not a Christian. Christianity is Christ. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? It's Christ and him crucified. It's Christ, 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 Christ. It's what Christ does for you. John 1:16. from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
The Christian life is Christ. And look at Jesus' answer to Peter. It's really, I mean, you can kind of think of how Jesus, the tone in Jesus' voice, it's probably utter astonishment. Will you lay your life down for me? That's how you think this works? You know, I've been telling you that I'm going to Jerusalem to lay my life down. And now you're telling me you're going to lay your life down for me? Peter had lost sight of what the Lord had said over and over and over again, that the Lord would be the one to lay down his life. Jot down these references, John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Over and over again, we know from the other gospels as well, that Jesus told his disciples he was going to Jerusalem to lay down his life. That's Christianity. It's the substitutionary death of Christ. That's it. That's it. You are saved by grace and grace alone with not one ounce of your works. In fact, if, if you think that you can contribute a work to what Christ accomplished, then you are essentially nullifying the cross of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. Christ died because there's no way on earth that you could live a perfect life. No way. You have stumbled and fallen short of the law. All have sinned and fallen short of the, the law of God, of the righteousness of God. All have sinned. All deserve condemnation and judgment. And Christ died so that we could have grace. Christ died so that we could find in him the pathway to heaven. And Peter doesn't understand this reality. He doesn't truly understand who Christ is. This is, this is something that's really important for us to think about. That yes, Christ is truly man, but he's also truly God. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it is the fact that Christ is the son of God, the eternal son of God, that he can accomplish salvation for us. That's the truth of who Christ is. One of the reasons why I've come to love the Reformed faith, love the Reformed faith, is its emphasis upon grace and Christ. That we are depraved sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And the Reformed faith has said over and over through the centuries that Christ needs to be lifted up and Christ needs to be worshiped and Christ needs to be honored because 
all of salvation is accomplished by him, and you did none of it. I remember sitting one time uh, listening to Sinclair Ferguson preach. Any of y'all ever heard Sinclair Ferguson? Oh, my goodness. It's like heaven came down. He was preaching on a passage in Hebrews about the person of Christ and his infinite glory and what he accomplished. And you become gripped with this reality that salvation is it completely accomplished by him, that we deserve no glory, not one ounce of glory. Well, I believed. I believed. He, he did his part. I did my part. Yes, but guess what? Why do you think you believed? You believed because Christ pursued you, that Christ gave you a new heart, and that's why you believed. So even in the believing, he gets the glory. It's all his glory. Every ounce of it, it's Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. And unfortunately, Peter, in overestimating his abilities, in underestimating the person of Christ, then goes on to deny Christ. And this is what Jesus predicts. If you look, turn back to John 13, in verse 38. Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, you are going to commit a grievous sin, you're going to deny me, but it will happen soon. The roosters would begin crowing before the fourth watch of the night, which would be between 3 and 6 a.m., so the roosters begin crowing in those early morning hours. So not only would Peter deny our Lord within the, the next 8 to 10 hours, uh, he would deny the Lord before he literally physically hears the, the crowing of the rooster. Christ knew Peter, Christ knew the disciples just like he knows each of us. Matthew Henry says that Christ not only knows the weakness of traitors, he also knows the weakness of his saints. And before the rooster crows, Peter will have denied our Lord three times. Interestingly, you ever look on a barn and see a, uh, a wind vane? Oftentimes, it's what? A rooster, Right? And the rooster's being turned by the wind. Christians started doing that about a thousand years ago to remind ourselves about, about how easy it is to fall because Peter fell when the rooster crowed. That's why they're there. Peter's denial of our Lord is a serious sin. The, the Greek word means to repudiate, repudiate. You think about politics. And, and how when you see a politician doing a media interview, sometimes, for example, recently they might ask, do you repudiate and condemn Hamas? The politician says, yes, of course I do. It's, it's a desire to not even be associated with the actions of someone. You know, we, we think, okay, we need to repudiate abortion or Nazism or communism or whatever it is. It's, it's something that you don't even want to be associated with. The same word is used 
in Matthew 10, 33, when our Lord says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I will repudiate, Jesus says, if, if you repudiate me. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus says will happen with Peter and what we find out a curse. Peter three times denies even being associated with Christ. He disassociates himself. He is not only unwilling to die with him, he is unwilling to even be named with him as one of his disciples. So it's really hard to to fathom this, that the leader of the disciples, the leader of the 12, the one who makes the great confession that we saw in Matthew 16, is the one who then denies our Lord. But it's not only Peter. It's not only Peter who denies the Lord. Mark tells us, and jot down these verses. This is Mark 14, 27. Jesus told all the disciples, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the disciples said the same. So Peter said he would die with the Lord. And all the disciples echoed this as well. But all the disciples ultimately end up being scattered and leaving Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. They all essentially denied the Lord. Yes, Peter, Peter did it verbally, but all the disciples abandoned Christ. And you, you have to think about their situation that morning. Peter abandoned the Lord. The other disciples ran away in, in terror. And they're all in different places. And somewhere around 3 or 4 a.m., they hear the rooster crow. What do you think they think about? They remember that our Lord had predicted that. They remember, oh, oh my goodness. I have abandoned my Lord just as he predicted, just as he promised. Do you know what Luke says Peter did when he heard the rooster crow? He went out and he wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. Peter repented. When they heard the rooster crow, I think they all repented they all remembered Christ's lordship. And they all said, oh my goodness, we have fallen. But we want to follow Christ more truly. We want to be his disciples. And that's why Jesus goes to them on the Sea of Galilee. And you remember he took Peter aside and three times asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you agapao me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times he says, well, then feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And he restores Peter three times for the three denials. And then this is in John 21. This is what our Lord says to Peter, verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you, were, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. 
This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter was restored. And in a very real sense, what, G, what Peter said that he would do for Christ by Christ's power, he would one day do. He would be crucified for the glory of Christ. And as Christ said to him, follow me, follow me. Let me just give you several brief application points to think about as we think about Peter's sin, the disciples' sin, and the restoration. First, in order to not sin, don't overestimate your strength and underestimate Satan's ability to tempt you. Don't overestimate your strength and underestimate Satan's ability to tempt you. You know, Paul says over and over and over again in his, letter, in his letters, be on the alert, be on the alert, be sober-minded. We need to be sober-minded. We are in a battle against the world, against our flesh, against the devil, and we must not overestimate our strength to withstand sin. In order to not sin, trust in Christ's power and not your own. Trust in the word of God. Trust in the prayers of the saints. Trust in Christ's power, not your own strength. Go to him, rely on him, memorize scripture. Ask and pray that the Holy Spirit would use the scriptures. You're trying to withstand temptation to fuel the the flame of courage in your heart. Third, when you sin, respond in confession and repentance. John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Fourth, fourth, know this. As you do this, as you do these three things in the Christian life, you are progressively becoming more like Christ. You might not see it. You might not feel like it. But you are becoming more like him. More like him. And that's the goal for his ultimate glory. That's the goal. Christ-likeness. The people who are most Christ-like are often the people who feel the least Christ-like because they know their sin. But I promise you, you rely on his grace, you rely on his word, not, on, not in your own strength, you will become like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we look to Christ and him crucified Truly man, truly God, the one who accomplished all of our salvation for us, who gives us the grace that we need to live the Christian life. And Lord, for those of us who have stumbled, and we all stumble in many ways, Lord, may we be quick to confess, may we be quick to repent, and may we be quick to strive to follow Christ. May we guard our hearts with your word, may we stand on our prayers. And may we stand in your strength. 
Lord, I pray that we would have great affection for Christ. I pray, Lord, for those who might not know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts so that they can believe and trust and repent. They would have great affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. They would desire to obey him and not go after the ways of the world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.